Hey everybody, and welcome to the uh, sixth, I think it's sixth, sixth SFD short. Before we get into it, two quick and awesome announcements. Uh, first is that while my internet here outside of Nashville, Tennessee is, if I do the math, uh, something like 20 times worse than what I had in Mexico, if I can find a library study room or something, then Rob Morris and I will be having another conversation this Thursday. It'll be sometime in the afternoon, and we'll be doing it the same way that we did last time. That is, broadcasting on YouTube, where you can listen to us live and give us all the questions and comments we can handle through the chat. If you can't make that show, I'll be paring it down and cleaning it up and putting it up right here like a podcast. The other thing is that, per what I said last week, I've got a Patreon set up now at patreon.com slash democracy, and we'll have a link on the show page. And since Rob referred me, if you're thinking about sending me anything from a dollar on up, hop on that in the next 30 days, or even better, this week, because supporting me will, because of Patreon's referral policy, end up supporting Rob's work with the More Freedom Foundation, too. If you're not familiar with Patreon, you set it up with your card or your PayPal, and you decide what amount you'd like to give me per show that I put up, and Patreon will do all the charging and handling of the cash for you. If you don't want the hassle of calculating how many shows I'll make in a month or of dealing with my regular schedule, you can also set up a monthly maximum. So, for example, if you'd rather give me $10 a month than $10 for every show or try to divide it into $250 for every show and hope that it's only four weeks in a month, then what you do is you set it for $10 a show and then set up a $10 monthly maximum and boom, you're there. So, right now, I've only got one reward tier on Patreon, which is $1, and that'll make you an SFD citizen with rights to vote on future shorts and show topics. And I'll play around with that a little bit as soon as we've started building a body politic. If you've got any ideas for other rewards that you'd like as listeners, let me know. If you want to come on the show or be my pen pal or maybe I could send you like an autographed pair of boxers, whatever, reach out on Facebook or Twitter or the show page and I'll see what we can put together. All right. All right. Housekeeping out of the way. The title here is Death to the Republic. My name is John and this is Safe for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. Yes, our progress has been uneven. The work of democracy has always been hard. It's always been contentious. Sometimes it's been bloody. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own uh, criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. It's goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part you can't even passively take part. 
and you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop, and you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. So at the time I originally wrote this post, which is about to become this podcast, the Senate had just confirmed Mad Dog Mattis, the first time since George Marshall at the end of the Second World War that a military man had gotten a waiver to serve as Secretary of Defense. Two days before that, Donald Trump had gotten in front of a crowd to crudely berate two different news agencies and to announce that unlike every other president in modern history, he would not be separating himself from his business interests. A week before that, congressional Republicans had tried to eliminate the only independent ethics committee that oversees the legislature as the very first act of their new session. Failing in that aim, they had scheduled more cabinet confirmation hearings in less time than literally ever in history, hoping to railroad a slate of candidates who were, with little exaggeration, bent on destroying the respective departments. Late in December, North Carolina Republicans, having lost the governorship, used the end of their lame duck session to divest the executive in North Carolina of its powers and invest them, in effect, in the Republican Party, leading the Electoral Integrity Project to categorize that state as having, quote, deeply flawed, partly free democracy that is only slightly ahead of the failed democracies that constitute much of the developing world, unquote. Not only that, but, quote, North Carolina does so poorly on the measures of legal framework and voter registration that on those indicators we rank alongside Iran and Venezuela. When it comes to the integrity of the voting district boundaries, no country has ever received as low a score as the 7 out of 100 that North Carolina received. North Carolina is not only the worst state in the USA for unfair districting, but the worst entity in the world ever analyzed by the Electoral Integrity Project." And since then, when I originally wrote this, which was either five months or five years ago, this past January, God, some other stuff has happened. The president has hired both his son-in-law and his daughter to be the right and left-hand people of his administration. He's taken advantage of a year-long stall on the part of the Republicans and installed a conservative justice in Merrick Garland's seat. He's put two different avowed white supremacists in office in Sebastian Gorka and Steve Bannon, and a much more effective, subtler one in Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Virtually every member of the administration has lied to the Congress or the Senate or both about conniving with the Russians. Trump has fired FBI Director James Comey while Comey was investigating him, and then he told Lester Holt that that's why he fired Comey. Something is up, folks. What's important about everything I mentioned, though, or at least it was when I first wrote this, and is still unfortunately true except for all the perjury stuff and maybe the nepotism, is that none of it is illegal. What those actions transgressed were norms and not laws. All right, sorry, let me just establish something right now. The Trump administration is breaking the law and doing stuff that, while Jeff Sessions will continue to defend it, is pretty clearly immoral at best, like flouting the emoluments clause, hiring his kids, and covering up something related to Russia. But the Trump administration is also, and at the same time, messing with norms. And I'm going to try to get at why that's also, and maybe even more, important. This was all a little more straightforward before Trump actually got into office and blew by every benchmark we had for wrongdoing in the first week and a half. All right, anyway, 
A norm is a standard or pattern, especially of social behavior that is typical or expected of a group. That is, it's any non-legal, although not necessarily unwritten, rule of behavior. A norm of American business, for example, is that you show up to meetings early, whereas a norm of Mexican business is generally that you don't. A norm of American stores is that you get into and don't cut into line. A norm of American presidential elections is that you don't do pretty much everything that our current president did, from insulting the press to engaging with white supremacists on Twitter. I think the best writing about norms on the internet has gone down at the sift in the Countdown to Augustus series of posts, and if you take anything from this particular podcast, it's that you ought to go read the sift, which is at weeklysift.com, and that link will be on the page for this show, this Monday and every Monday. The guy who writes the sift, a guy named Doug Muter, makes the point that the last hundred years before the Roman Republic broke down and became the Roman Empire weren't characterized by a breakdown in the rule of law, per se, but in the norms that had up to that point governed Roman society. What the founding fathers of this republic understood, and what's become more difficult to understand for us, 15 decades out from the Civil War, is that democracy and republicanism have been, historically, among the least stable forms of government. A rotating group of leaders beholden to popular pressure getting voted into and out of office every few years by an electorate that may or may not be well-informed, or informed at all, or kind of oppositely informed, as the right was during this past election, is just not as stable a form of government as a long-lived monarchy. And when Jefferson and Madison and all the rest sat down to figure out what our constitution and form of government were going to look like, they had a wealth of historical examples to study, all of which had either been conquered or devolved into tyranny or both. Those guys were working off what was in effect a classical education in political science, one that, from Plato to Polybius, had understood any given government to be always engaged in a historical cycle that moved from monarchy to dictatorship to aristocracy to oligarchy to democracy to demagogy to tyranny and right around again, although the exact terms and the order depend on which Greek you're reading. The cycle was pronounced enough, apparently, that Polybius could write in his histories, quote, in the case of those Greek states which have often risen to greatness and have often experienced a complete change of fortune, it is an easy matter both to describe their past and to pronounce on their future, for there is no difficulty in reporting the known facts, and it is not hard to foretell the future by inference from the past." Unquote. The decision to create a republic, where the people elect representatives to rule them, rather than a direct democracy, on the part of our founding fathers, was a response to that history that Polybius was talking about. The Athenian experiment with direct democracy that our founding fathers were very aware of was short-lived, and it devolved very quickly into aggressive empire and into the first totally destructive total war between the Athenians and Sparta. The Roman Republic, which worked through a combination of aristocracy and representative democracy, by contrast, lasted a good sight longer than ours has yet. The first century and a half of U.S. history was, in a sense, a century and a half of movement away from that same kind of aristocratic representative republicanism that the Romans had, and towards a more centralized and more direct democracy. We used to, for example, elect the Senate indirectly, and now we do it directly. The Electoral College used to be able to vote its conscience, and now representatives are bound by law to vote with their voters. 
The Civil War decided that it would be a single entity, the federal government, and not the states that would have the final legal say. Stretching the 150 years, U.S. foreign policy up to the end of the Second World War was almost entirely the province of the State Department bureaucracy. Now foreign policy is centered in the White House, and it responds to the demands of the electorate. Now, I don't know if that change has been mostly good or mostly bad, and I'm not trying to judge it here in this show, but in putting more power into the hands of the people more often, it has made the system less stable in the most literal way, that is, more subject to change. The story of the last half-century in the U.S. has been the story of the erosion of norms in our politics in all sorts of ways, not all of which are obvious to those of us who have grown up in the same period. The end of World War II was also the end of the United States without a standing army, and the beginning of the United States with a kind of shadow government of military contractors and intelligence agencies, unbeholden to the public or even to public servants. Rob and I got into this a lot during our last conversation. Since the Tonkin Gulf Resolution under President Johnson, we moved from a model in which the public, by way of the Congress, had to declare a war, into one in which a president can effectively do so acting alone. Both George W. Bush and Barack Obama have pushed that imperial presidency further, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and signing statements, and Obama did it by way of executive orders and drone strikes and assassination lists. Trump. Well, it's hard to see if there's any real method there, but his administration seems to be heading in an exodian direction, and that fits the trend. It's easy to read history about Rome or Athens or wherever else, and to see the breakdowns in their democracies and their republics as quick, visible events. We look back at Pericles and Marius and Pompey and Caesar and think, how could they not have seen what was going on? How could they not have known that what they were doing was destroying their republic? But what we have to keep in mind is that the normative changes in those societies took place over decades or centuries. Every individual actor was only pushing things a little bit further, adding their little bit to the pile of small social upheavals that eventually tipped the scale. The Founding Fathers were aware of and trying to stave off the decline of the new republic, even at the beginning, in a way that's become totally foreign to us now. In his farewell address, Washington described how one cycle of normative destruction might play out by way of political factions, stuff that we know now as parties. Quote, The alternative domination of one faction over another, sharpened by the spirit of revenge, natural to party dissension, which in different ages and countries has perpetrated the most horrid enormities, is itself a frightful despotism. But this leads at length to a more formal and permanent despotism, the disorders and miseries which result gradually incline the minds of men to seek security and repose in the absolute power of an individual. And sooner or later the chief of some prevailing faction, more able or more fortunate than his competitors, turns this disposition to the purposes of his own elevation, on the ruins of public liberty." Unquote. Now, I don't think Trump is the chief of that particular faction because I don't think he is more able or more fortunate than his competitors, except in his parentage. But I think Washington foretold more than 200 years ago what direction we were headed in. Now, I think that we as a country are on our way towards our decline and fall. Every country on Earth, for all of history, has declined and fallen. And I think that a big step towards delaying the eventual end is realizing that it's out there. And that the only thing between it and us is us. And as we stare down the barrel of an evolving Trump presidency, it's important that we realize that the things that might happen aren't necessarily temporary hurts. 
things from which we can recover after he's gone. I don't mean just legal changes, like repealing or replacing the ACA with something worse. I mean normative ones. Things like eroding civilian control of the military. Like going from our system of at least legal, manageable corruption, in the form of pork and lobbying, to the out-and-out variety, like Trump flouting the emoluments clause and hiring his kids. I mean rewarding political supporters like Betsy DeVos, not just with European ambassadorships, but with consequential cabinet posts. I mean bringing out-and-out racism back into the public discourse. I mean destroying the moral authority of both the GOP and the Senate by having them defend a president who's fired the guy investigating him. The thing about norms is that they're self-reinforcing, both in strength and in weakness. When a substitute teacher comes into class and one kid raises their hand, everyone afterwards is more likely to do so. And when a sub comes in and somebody throws a paper airplane, the class is ever more likely to devolve into chaos. When the GOP turned the filibuster from a relative rarity into a given, they made it easier for the Democrats to pull parliamentary shenanigans and get the ACA passed, which made it easier for the GOP to keep roadblocking and to turn a government shutdown from something totally unthinkable into a regular threat. Democrats are looking at minorities in the House and the Senate for at least another year and a half, and it's more than a little bit likely that we'll be seeing them head down the same road that their colleagues have tread for the last eight years. So far, the GOP's had a hard time getting anything done, but we'll see how the hardball gets played once we run up against budget deadlines and debt ceilings. We know that Mitch McConnell wasted no time at all to blow away the filibuster to get his Supreme Court seat. And if Trump feels it's all right to hold on to his businesses this time, the next president might find it's all right to hold on to them and govern expressly in their interests. So we've got to decide what it is we want. And the onus here, right now, is on conservatives. Because for everybody, liberals and folks on the right alike, it's easier and quicker to get what we want by trespassing the norms that keep our society and politics slow and steady and stable. It was easier for the Gracchus brothers to become tribunes of the plebs, Easier for Sulla to be a dictator for just a little while. Easier for Caesar to march on Rome. But every norm we leave behind us is part of what kept the ship of state on course for the last 200 years. We are all becoming fatalists and millenarians, and members of every group, from Bernie Bros to Prepperus to the god kings of Silicon Valley, like to salivate over the idea of societal collapse. Tear the whole thing down and build anew. It's an attractive idea, especially given the things that I get into in this podcast. But we have to realize that while the death of a small state is a tragedy, the death of an empire is a holocaust. And for all of history, slow and steady has won the race. And me, for the things I want, addressing climate change and racism and structural sexism and money in politics and the size of the military, I'd much rather plug away at them year after year than wipe it all out and hope that the collapse of this empire is the first one in all of history that'll go well for its citizens and neighbors. But I don't know, and I am not entirely sure that it is not too late. And if we cannot turn it around, then we will not stave off what Edward Gibbon in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire called a memorable series of revolutions which gradually undermined and at length destroyed the solid fabric of human greatness. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. 
During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.